welcome back to the Fortune in Charge novel review. In this episode, we conclude Chapter 4. After making his delivery to Sandra's, Al returns to Patrico's and talks with Stu. Pretty explicitly, Stu is meant to be a cautionary tale for Al. As Stu recalls what led him to being a near middle-aged pizza delivery boy, there should be some parallels drawn to Al's experience. The shaky performance in school, the repeated attempts at discipline, Stu trying to cope, and the eventual toll all of the world um, has on him until he is beat down and ambitiousless. At the end of the shift, Al returns to Sandra's party. He is con- controlled well enough until he has had a few beers and begins to talk to Trisha's boyfriend, Claude. Uh, the intention is, at first, a friendly conversation that escalates into hostility, leading to Al making a few nasty implications that anger Claude, um, that make Claude push Al over. There is something futile yet cathartic in um, Al attending the party. Instead of skulking away or you know, letting the situation overtake him or make him feel inadequate, he opts to destroy it to demonstrate in his way that he is in control. As is stated in the chapter, if you can't make it, might as well destroy it. He knows he will be rejected by his friend group anyway, so he beats them to the punch and then returns to his familiar ground. At the Inferno, the old distant saw works to get high with Mara. Inspiration. I see the end of this chapter as Al fully untethering himself from his old life, as in his friend group, and becoming dependent on Morrow, literally depicting um, Al losing sight of reality because of the salvia hallucinogenic, and being so thankful once he recognizes Morrow again and returns to reality. In a sense, Al descends into nothingness as the chapter concludes first socially at the party, and then mentally as he takes the hallucinogenic. It is a bad trip, so to speak, but an escape nonetheless. Craft and structure. A motif of this chapter, I would say, is gambling, uh, related to the novel's title of Fortune and Charge. The conflict of chance and feeling like we are in control. For Al, there is a metaphor of poker, specifically the bluffing element, and needing to bluff most effectively when you have nothing. It is a practice Al believes he is good at, which illustrates his personality and the dangerous situations he will find himself in. He revels in risk, in pushing himself into a corner and trying to find his way out. There is also this repeated command by Stu to not be a peon. I think in simple terms, that is the aspiration for all characters. To not be an an insignificant person. To lead a life of distinction and success. However valuable Al might see this message as being, he is not making any real effort to avoid this fate. He timidly waved at her, clumsily smiled, and tilted his head to the ground. Al, good to see you, she said with feigned sincerity. I didn't know you worked at Patrico's. Just working until I can afford to buy you a wedding ring. (laughs) Where'd that come from? His mind seemed to be twisted between Fleischer banter and his days of spouting romanticism her way. 
Wow, well, my boyfriend probably will not like that too much. Of course, was it any surprise to him that she would be scooped up within her first year at LaSalle? How cruel was it that just as she began to leave his mind for good, she had to go to Sandra's party, and Sandra had to order pizzas at Patrico's, and Al had to deliver them. He told himself he didn't care. If it wasn't full-blown obsession and addiction, it had to be a checkout, an exit, a total absence, mind, body, and soul. He had nothing, and he knew he had nothing. What's left to do in that situation? Either bluff or fold. The utter shock of being thrust into this situation left him dumb, slow-witted, and incapable of concocting an adequate bluff for the time being. So he just said, he's a lucky guy. Sandra, I'll swing by later, and return to Patrico's. Stu was pacing up and down the counter and playing air guitar to Running with the Devil when Al returned. From Stu's wide eyes and constant motion, it was clear that he had just did a bump of cocaine on the last delivery. Most people thought of Stu as either a loser or some type of buffoon. Few thought of him as an actual person, except Al. Stu had told him years ago to not be a peon, and although Al somewhat laughed the comment, laughed the comment off, he also took it to heart. He, Stu, was a cautionary tale of an ambitious life. How did you happen to be a 43-year-old pizza delivery boy? I wasn't wired right, Stu would often say sometimes unprovoked, like right now in the middle of a kokai. They plop you at a desk for eight hours and tell you what to do, but they don't know what to do when you can't do it. They just say, try harder, be quicker. But I couldn't do that, man, and my pop would beat me so hard. I couldn't see straight when my report card went home. Ah, man, those goddamn nuns. Sister Mary Fischetti, oh, I will never forget her. Mean, mean, mean. How can you be married to Jesus and be that mean? Ah, man, but what's... That they do. They break you early and often. Oh, and if you're already damaged, hot damn, right in the garbage you go after they've pounded your knuckles raw and you still ain't fixed. By the grace of our good Lord and Savior, I graduated high school, top of my class only in keg stands. Somewhere in between all of those school day follies, probably right when I was getting peach fuzz on my nuts, my father hit the road and never came back. More accurately, he went down for a conference in Orlando one August weekend and never came back. Married some lady of the night or a diner waitress. Oh, what does it matter? Anyway, so I'm an unapologetic mama's boy. All us Italians are. And so I vowed to never leave my mother like he did. Not unless a good girl came along, and none never did. Only bad ones. I had a few office jobs, but I couldn't hack all of the sitting. Especially all the typing in front of a computer screen nonsense. Ah oh, man, my back ached more than those jobs in hauling bags of sand all day at the Home Depot. But those jobs always made my mom happy. She liked to brag that her son worked at Oldenburg and Seferini, or Allied Process Management, or Dunleavy Brothers and Binder. And so I did what I had to for her. But you see, I've always had this terminal gash in my brain, and I've had to use these little band-aids to cover it up. Stu mimed smoking a joint, and then snorting cocaine, and then swigging a beer. Which I was doing to really be better, but it just screwed me up at work. I failed a few piss tests, and I couldn't get back into the 9 to 5, so here I am. The peon you see before you today. It gets better every time, pal. No, it gets much, much worse. Man, if I could go back to your age, but... What? Ah, that's a bunch of horse shit anyway. Sometimes a person is just goddamn doomed. Perhaps it was his own doom that led Al back to Sandra's after work at Patrico's. Maybe there was some providence that Al had yet to see. Either way, he had given Sandra his word that he would return, and he at least still had a semblance of valor attached to his word. He drove his Chevy Chevy celebrity toward Glenlock Street, smoking his cigarette hard, as if out of necessity. 
as if he was at the bottom of the ocean, suffocating, and a diver miraculously handed him a snorkel and oxygen tank. His old space hog cassette was playing, and Al dreamed of the day when he would have a brand new car with a CD player. In the meantime, this would have to do. Morrow had paged him a few hours earlier and said he was hooked up with weed pills and even some hallucinogenics, which Al had not ventured into yet. He had told Morrow he'd most likely buy sometime tomorrow, but to keep his pager ready. Morrow was an on-and-off-again fiend, but since their encounter at the Inferno, the day after senior prom, he had become much more sophisticated and with a steady, reliable group of suppliers and relying on trustworthy sellers like Al on occasion to help push business along. Al was certainly more of a drug consumer than seller, but if a few bets went south and he needed some extra cash, he would sell a bit. He knew he'd always have at least one buyer in stew. He had five or six beers at Sandra's before he started to consider talking to Trisha. She did, in fact, have a boyfriend, and he was at the party with a few of his friends. Conveniently, Trisha's boyfriend, Claude, was from Holmesburg, just a few neighborhoods away from Tacony. He was about 6'2", skinny, and his hair was dyed blonde, gelled, and spiked in a similar fashion as Mike McGrath from Sugar Ray. From a distance, Claude seemed to be holding court with his Holmesburg friends, gesticulating and contorting expressions on his face while his buddies gazed at him in wonderment. Al had the strategy now clear in his mind, and he approached Claude and his friends. You seem like a natural storyteller, my man. I don't really know too many people here besides the chicks. Do you mind if I join the huddle? Claude smiled and extended his hand. He seemed like a nice enough fellow. Of course not, man. Name's Claude Dupont. I'm Trisha's boyfriend. I don't know if you know her. This is Rob, Mike, and Frank. You're the pizza boy, right? <laughs> yeah. Al Mercer. Nice to meet you. Hope the pies were nice and hot. And yeah, I know Trisha. Sweet. Yeah, man. Killer pies. Oh, hey, hey, hey. It's the Buffalo Soldier, man. Fleischer interjected in a Jamaican accent, seeming to appear out of nowhere. Still bone dry, my man? Because I could really use a bone right about now. Hey, Cat Guthrie. Did you write a song that would stop the world from spinning on its axis yet? To get people to really think, man? Nope, I did solve a few lion's head bottle cap riddles, though. Impressive. Since you don't have the manners to do it yourself, I'll introduce you to these kids from Holmesburg. Holmesburg? All up in the tack? He's are in the hood now. Fleischer giggled to himself and gave them all some hybrid of a handshake and a high five. And then he started to stumble away. I'll catch you on the flip, Bundy, old boy. There's a career for you. Women's shoe salesman. At least it's on the up and up. I'll take that under consideration. Just let me know your shoe size. Fleischer closed his eyes and bent his wrist to the floor as if throwing in an invisible towel and waddled toward the keg. Al turned back to Claude and his crew. Let's hope he doesn't go out like a true rock star and choke on his own vomit tonight. The crowd laughed and Claude somberly shook his head. Hendrix, man. Yep. Gone way too soon. The national anthem, man. There'll never be an, anyone better. I'll be going to that Woodstock this summer. Wow, really? I wish. I'm taking the summer business course and I'm waiting tables at the Italian Bistro on the boulevard. Bummer. Would Trisha let you go to something like that anyway? In high school, she was a huge prude. Really? She seems pretty down for stuff since I've known her. I mean, we met at the Phi Beta Gamma party. She even got pretty buzzed before this big presentation in her anthropology class. I don't know. I have to keep up with her most of the time. So she's a party girl now? I guess that's what all of the geeks do once they get released into the wild. <laughs> I guess. So she was a geek at Lincoln? Oh man, big time. But hey, you know I took her to junior prom. 
She was a party girl that night, if you know what I mean. Hey, dude, that's my girlfriend. You sure? Hey, fuck you. He put down his beer and pushed Al. Al fell to the floor after tripping on a coffee table. Yikes, Trisha, are you seeing this? Your boyfriend is roughing up the poor pizza boy. Claude, what is going on? Trisha said with deep concern. This dude is an asshole. He was talking all this trash. I was just talking about you, Al said to Trisha with a smirk. Claude, you're better than that. Did you used to hook up with this creep? No, no. She gently touched Claude's shoulder to soothe him. Nothing like that. Let's talk about it later. I don't want to talk about it with all of these people standing around and looking at us. Al rose to his feet. Yeah, nothing like that. Hey, Trisha, call me. And he made his hand into a phone. Oh my God, you're a psycho. Get out of here. I'm already gone, baby. Hugs and kisses. He left the party and entered his Chevy celebrity. To him, if you couldn't make it, you might as well destroy it. He went through trying to make cutting a perfect lawn, being a gentleman to Trisha, and he only received scorn. Might as well burn it down. Maybe let someone else feel misery as well. After calling Mara at a 7-Eleven payphone, he met him down at the Inferno, for at least old time's sake. Mara was wearing his signature bandana and smoking a Newport 100 nonchalantly out of his Ford Probe when Al arrived. Al had always felt himself a degenerate renegade, but he was nothing compared to Mara. Mara was arrested several times, did some time for possession, and did not conform one iota. If anything, he had new inspiration for crime and drug use when he was released. He never wanted to be any type of drug kingpin, but he had an incessant need to be outside of the law, to do the opposite of what was expected. It's like you tell me to do something and then I immediately don't want to do it, he said one time, which Al completely understood. Mom tells me to do the dishes, I lock myself in my room and play Street Fighter. Teacher tells me to spit out my gum, I pop a bubble right in her face. I have a nothing hand in poker and I go all in. That's just how it is. For as much as he played the outlaw, Al believed Mara was good at heart. Loyal as the moon in the night sky, wiser than an Encyclopedia Britannica collection, and as honest and charitable as a crook could be. A prime example was Morrow having a joint already rolled for Al when he entered the Ford Probe. A tight, sleek little ride with a CD player and a thunderous sound system in the trunk. Al took a long drag from the joint and exhaled cathartically. A long day's journey into night, Morrow asked as he observed Al's alleviated expression. Yeah, something like that. Batshit old hags, 30-minute or less deliveries, and unrequited loves. Mary Jane will always give her love back to you. You're either the hunter or the doe. Can't we all just have some grass and move on? <laughs> Truer words, my brother. Morrow rummaged through his back seat. You want to sell for me this weekend? He held out about two ounces of weed. I'll take some, but I don't have the energy right now if that's cool. Where'd you get all that from? This guy in Bucks County of all places. A wannabe gangsta, I think, but he's all right. His pop owns this luxurious banquet hall up there. The kid's juiced in with all the cooks and busboys and what have you that have the connections, and this kid has the money to buy big. How'd you get hooked up with him? One of my customers is this DJ. I met him at my cousin Julia's wedding at the Knights of Columbus. We were both having a smoke out back, and I sold him a dime. He'd buy almost as frequently as you, but then he disappeared. Well, I was at Harrington's one night, and it was open mic night. My DJ friend went up and was doing the beat mashup thing on his turntables, like Fatboy Slim or something, and this kid started rapping. You know, man, baggy jeans, sideways fitted cap, white tall tee, really trying to sell it, but rapping like the whitest man on the planet. I'm surprised his hair wasn't bleached blonde like Eminem. Anyway, the rapper kid ended up being my new supplier. 
I guess you can say. Name's Costanza. Like George? Huh, yeah. Right on. Well, this shit is pretty good, too. Yeah. He just has weed for now, but he's ambitious. I'll give him that. I think if he doesn't become the next great white rapper, he'll at least settle for being a semi-legitimate white thug. More power to him. Al was feeling mellow after he and Morrow finished the joint. It was one of those strange nights where it seemed like everyone in Philadelphia was asleep. He had always dreamt of getting out of the city, maybe moving somewhere warm like Florida or California. But tonight, the city seemed just fine. The stars were even out in the sky, and the Delaware River was a beautiful black glaze rolling down into eternity. Things were funny. How you could just laugh at things when you were high. What a miracle to see everything as an absurdity rather than a threat. What mattered more than just sitting with a good friend, laughing, maybe saying something prophetic and deep, at least at the time, and being satisfied with the night drifting away. My buzz is starting to wear off. You want to try something different? Mara said out of a haze. What did you have in mind? It's this stuff called salvia. It's actually legal in Jersey. They sell it on the boardwalk and all that. What's it like? People say different things. Some say it's just a different type of high compared to weed. Some say you just trip on it, you know, either really good or really bad. Either way, the high only lasts like five minutes, but it feels much, much longer. All right, whatever, why not? Mara packed the black pungent shreds, almost the consistency of chewing tobacco, into the smoking bowl. It had to be smoked out of a bowl to work. Al took the first hit and passed the bowl to Morrow. They passed it back and forth until it was extinguished. At first, Al didn't feel much of anything. A little bit of tingling, sure, but that was it. Then he started to feel hot like he had a fever, and sweat started to pour from his forehead. Morrow was laughing like a school kid, seemingly at nothing, a laugh that kept swelling and swelling in pitch and euphoria, like a busted teddy bear with a voice string that was perpetually stuck on one bit of sound. Al turned his head away from him. Moving his neck was suddenly like trying to move it while in the middle of an avalanche, and his head felt heavier than what his neck could possibly support. He was now incapable of moving his body one modicum, and he was glued to the passenger seat. Al tried moving his fingers to escape the car, but he was in complete paralysis. The car was becoming smaller and smaller, and Mara was gone. Oh, what he'd give to hear that sweet laughter again. No, now no sound whatsoever. Oppressive silence. Walls getting closer. A magnificent bright light, and he inside it. The pressure of a snake curling around his entire body, tighter, tighter. God in every fiber of his skin. Complete and utter solitude. No connection to the world anymore. And then the bandana, perfect paisley and green. His big teeth open wide and laughing, slapping his thighs. It was Morrow. Morrow was next to him. He had returned, away from that awful, solitary realm. Al was in Tacony in the old distant Sawworks parking lot, in the Ford Probe, and sitting next to Patrick James Morrow. He had never been more grateful to see another person in his entire life. Thank you for listening to this episode. Next time we will begin Chapter 5 of the novel. Please be sure to follow on Instagram at Matthew Glasgow Author and visit Amazon for reading options. See you next time.